You're listening to the Regent College Podcast. Welcome to the Regent College Podcast. I'm Claire Perini, and today we're talking about the gospel and the common good. I'm joined by two people who have spent lots of time in different parts of Africa, uh, Dr. Diane Stinton and Dr. Zach Nieringier. Diane serves in a double role here at Regent as the Associate Professor of Mission Studies and World Christianity, as well as the Dean of Students. She's taught theology for many years in Kenya. And Zach is a theologian, a pastor, a Bible teacher, an organisational development consultant and an activist. He retired from his work as the Assistant Bishop of the Diocese of Kampala in 2012 to focus on the pursuit of peace and social political justice in Uganda. So Zach and Diane... Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks. They're both excited to be here. Um, Zach, tell us a little bit about your tell us a little bit of your story. Who are you? Wow, uh, that's not fair. <laughs> I have had. Uh, I'm now in my seventh decade of life. So really, how can I? <laughs> do you want me to say? Um, Just the highlights. No, grew up a rural boy in uh, the heart of Uganda, um, and. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm rural. That's that's important for me. Mm-hmm. It's uh, I love the earth, you know, and uh, I grew up uh, Christian parents, um, first generation believers in my part of the world, and um, really formed uh, in my journey uh, in Christ uh, through two very important uh, movements: the youth movement called Scripture Union. Uh, in Uganda and the Christian Union movement at university and college level. Um, That was important because I think one of the most significant things through those two movements in school and at college, at university, was learning to read the Bible Hmm. and taking the scriptures seriously uh, in my life. I think the second thing is... um, sharing my life as it is, uh, sharing the Jesus story, what it means, uh, and being open to challenge, to growing, to um, being challenged, to shifting grounds. Uh, So I really do appreciate uh, that foundation. Mm. Um, Then I think in terms of another key milestone, I mean, I did, and as I look back, I think it was good I did a science degree, a physics degree, hmm. which in many ways uh, affected how I think, how I view reality. I think that's one of the lenses that uh, has become important. Hmm. Um, and then I uh, served uh, in the student ministry for many, many years uh, in Uganda and across the continent, uh, a total of about 20 years, hmm. which was awesome, awesome. Um, again, the opportunity really to interact, engage, and see, and smell, and hear, and be in remarkable, wonderful relationships, uh, both across Africa, um, across the world. Uh, have amazing mentors in my life, uh, Ada Lam, a remarkable, remarkable Chinese-American woman who who's really helped me understand the call of God on my life. Mm. Uh, Uncle John Stott, you know, amazing, amazing man. Mm. I mean, added to uh, Bishop Festo Kivengere, remarkable in my life, uh, Michael Senyimba. So mentors, uh, I'm really, really grateful mm. for 
God's people who, who had so much impact on me. And I think that season of life, growing as a young minister, adult, seeking Jesus. I think the second thing to say out of that experience, especially Uganda across Africa, is devastation, uh, disposability of African lives, the uh, oh, unbelievable, the violence, violence, violence. And, and I think I began to ask questions about what therefore, um, what is Christianity, What's, mm. what does the gospel mean? And I think it was focused a little bit more when I spent two years at Wheaton College um, in what you would call the, then was called the mecca of American uh, evangelicalism. <laughs> um, and I think my questions were focused, especially about the whole question of missions, uh, missionary movement. Um, so I was privileged to stand there and one of the best uh, mission historians global. I mean, Professor Andrew Walls, mm. when I went to Edinburgh. And, and that also deepened. And I think it's then that I began to make a distinction between gospel witness and whether the missionary movement truly or aspects of it reflected that witness. Mm. I think that's when, as I think about it, um, that began to be focused. But, you know, questions remain. Uh, I learned again early in my life that questions matter more possibly than answers. Mm. So I am not afraid of asking questions, you know. Mm. Uh, so my friends who know me, they say that I'm a restless guy. Mm. And that's okay. I'm okay. I'm, I'm happy to be restless. Uh, and I find rest, the rest of God, uh, the Sabbath rest in that, uh, the peace, the joy. I, I enjoy life, please, mm. you know. Mm. Uh, I, I take seriously what Jesus says, uh, that he came to give us abundant life. So... Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm making the most of the little heaven I have here on earth. <laughs> so, um, and um, that, when I became, uh, then I had a stint, if you can't believe this, having been troubled about the missionary movement, then I, I served under uh, the epitome of mission society, <laughs> called the Church Missionary Society. I mean, oh my goodness. Actually, it's interesting, the time that the General Secretary of the CMS uh, began to consider me for becoming the regional director for Africa is when I had presented a paper critiquing uh. the CMS. <laughs> so I went in and uh, the, I couldn't last. Uh, after four years, I just thought, no, no, I've done enough. I want to be a pastor in a local church. But when I went back to Kampala, um, the archbishop then asked if I could consider to the position of a bishop. And... Um, being a bishop itself is quite an amazing thing because you, you don't get more institutional right. uh, in a, a church than becoming a bishop. I mean, episcopal positions are the institution itself. Yeah. So you can imagine I was suffocated some. <laughs> For think, a restless person, I mean, yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. Anyway, that's another story. Um, so... But again, uh, focused on a smaller area, you know, Kampala, so engaging uh, in the slums of the city. Uh, the, three, the three spaces that were, they always challenged my faith was the slum, uh, the places of uh, wastefulness of life. Oh my God, it's, you can't even imagine they live the way they live. Uh, one story that sticks with me is when it rains heavily in the city, these places get flooded. Mm. 
And I got a story in this uh, slum where we have a wonderful, wonderful ministry, a church. Uh, a child drowned in their home because of the rains. Because when the mother woke up, the whole home had had drowned and the child was sleeping on the floor. And so um, that the maximum security prison where there was a section for those condemned to death, it was always amazing thing going among people condemned to death and talk about Jesus and hear their story of Jesus. I mean, what, what can I say about Jesus to them? They, are, they were my teachers, really. They were my teachers because any time if uh, the president signed the... Uh, the death um, warrant, then it's done. So, um, and the third are the mentally uh, ill people. Uh, I mean, when you engage with people who are mentally ill, you also have to ask, is it possible that I have some form of mental illness of which I am not as aware? Uh, because they're amazing, you know, and the way Jesus works with them. So those places, I'll be honest with you, I found it most challenging uh, not in a positive way, but in a very more troublesome way, working among wealthy, elite, educated, people had a little bit more money, more settled, nice homes, uh, challenging to get them to experience another life, uh, to help them go to these slum places and, and feel them. So, um, But there again, I, my questions were focused. I had an experience which was crucial. I became chair of a national governing council in the country uh, for that was monitoring governance in the country overall. So I used to attend uh, cabinet meetings of government. I used to attend um, the African Union meetings, you know, with, with the president. With And I mean, I understood firsthand why uh, politics doesn't work in my country in Africa and, and how it works when it works and why it doesn't work when it does. Um, the, the socialization of our politics into violence, into you know the whole idea of patronage regimes, the neo-patrimonial state that doesn't work. No, no, actually, as I learned later from uh, Professor Emmanuel Katongole, it, it, the, the neo-colonial state, these African states, have succeeded to do what they were created to do, sadly. Mm -hmm. They were never created to serve the people. They were created to serve the colonialist, and uh, the missionaries didn't mind, actually, that's the truth, um, and to this day. So, and now the churches that inherited that and the African governments that inherited that, by far and large, there's been no transformation of the African state. And, and also, truth be told, the transformation of the African church. I, I always, it's then that I began to raise questions about church planting. Does the gospel include church planting, mm. you know? Uh, is church planting, I mean, church planting. And again, I read the New Testament. I mean, people have suggested Paul was planting churches. I am actually not sure. I am actually not sure, mm. you know. Mm. Um, did Jesus plant a church? I'm actually not sure. But there are communities of believers that emerge in each of these places. Mm. So uh, those questions uh, mm. through those processes. Um, but yes, the question, the significance, the importance of the public square, mm. how politics performs, how it affects every way of our lives, mm. whether we are aware of it or we are not aware of it. Mm -hmm. Now, for us uh, in Africa, it's in our face. I mean, it is in our face. You go to a hospital, it is in your face. You know, you're on the road, it takes 
how many hours to cross the city uh, distance of 15 uh, kilometers or something like that. So, yes, politics matters. Mm -hmm. And I actually came to this conclusion more recently that what changes societies is politics and business. Mm. So it's the public square. The public square matters. Yeah. Thanks, Dad. We'll, we'll get into a little bit more of how you... Sorry, that was a bit No, it's good. No, 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 not at all. That's great. It's fantastic. Um, Diane, tell us a little bit about how you came to be involved in theological education in Nairobi. Well, and first of all, you can see why I've had such a stimulating time there with uh, colleagues and friends like, uh, like Zach. So, yeah, my story would go back to um, being born in Angola, uh, which no doubt marked... Um, my formation, uh, my identity, though the years were relatively few, I do feel like those early formative years in Angola did mark me um, in significant ways. So although my family returned to Canada when I was about five, and I've uh, grown up here in Canada, I still had this um, sense from childhood that God was calling me back to ministry in Africa. And so any opportunity I had to uh, be researching uh, about Africa, um, I would I would take opportunity to do so. Uh, so yeah, finished high school, went to University of Calgary, um, did general studies, returned for uh, an uh, be it after because I, I sensed that uh, I wanted to teach. I stayed in Calgary and taught junior high school, of all things, for a couple of years. Uh, absolutely loved it. Mm. And I think as much as I enjoyed the content of uh, literature, it was really the relationships with the students that fueled my heart. Um, so I had a fabulous uh, two and a half years there. But then in the meantime, uh, speaking of Festo Cavendry, uh, he was a key voice in my, um, I mean, all along the way, I, it had been a strengthened um, Desire and uh, to, to see if uh, if there was a ministry back in Africa that I could participate in, and I heard um, Bishop Festo Cavendry at Urbana, 1979. And as Africans have such a gift of um, communicating, he, I remember him saying, "If you see ten people trying to move a log, and nine are on one end, and one is on the other, which end of the log would you go to?" And so I just had this desire that, no, I'm not going out to save Africa by mm. any means, but um, things were happening there. And if I, I felt so blessed by my own background, my upbringing in a, a really committed Christian family, really solid um, church, uh, involved in intervarsity ministries, and just I felt like I had received so much of God's grace in my life that if there were any opportunities to participate with God in what he was doing, then that's what my heartbeat, my my desire was. And if anything, I had to discern, is it just my sense of adventure? You know, like, what really is it that I want to give? Um, but for me... Um, Maybe both. <laughs> exactly. <Why not? laughs> I confessed. <laughs> Bishop, I confessed. And guess what? I got good. to go anyway. Excellent. <laughs> no, but to me Confession what the, is good for the soul. <laughs> <laughs> to me the strong drawing card was actually um the integration of education and life. So here um I loved being a teacher in Canada and I loved engaging in um, you know, ministry with, say, InterVarsity, where you're together with uh, students on weekends and retreats and camps and things like that. Mm -hmm. And yet when I went to, Af to Kenya for the first time, I taught in a, a girls' high school out in the rural area. Um, 
And it was like putting school and camp together into one. It was 24-7, and it was the richest experience of what I would call holistic education. Because, yes, you're in the classroom doing your work, you're doing homework, you're doing sports, you're going up to the market and, um, you know, having tea with the girls, you're going home with them on weekends, um, cultivating out in the gardens, even me, carrying mm. water. <laughs> you should actually um, hear Diane barter in a market in Nairobi. It's It's She doesn't let anyone go. I've heard it. It's, it's impressive. Anyway. But it sorry. was fabulous. I mean, going home to some of our students' homes and encountering... Um, for example, polygynous households, three women um, with separate families and just engaging with a completely different cultural context than I had known before. But such richness in having those girls to mentor in their teenage years as as, uh, as they were becoming formed as, as persons, as, um, yeah, it was, they were just remarkably rich years. And I remember returning to Canada, and as much as I loved teaching here, I thought you could not get me back into a classroom here just because it feels so confining to only do the academic thing. Um, so although I started off teaching English and a bit of um, Christian religious ed, that's when I came to Regent the first time to get theologically equipped myself and to pray and discern whether or not God was calling me back to longer, um, longer-term ministry. And so... In the end, I was um, through that experience. I, uh, I got opened avenues for me to return. Uh, in 1988, I went to Daystar University um, in this dual role of teaching biblical studies part time and working in the chaplaincy. And again, I couldn't have designed a better job description had I tried. It was phenomenal. And so there again, what I loved was that very integration of academic and spiritual formation that you're, you're, you know, we're doing life, we're doing community, we're all being formed together. I'm not coming there to teach as in impart knowledge. I'm coming there to learn, to share life, uh, to stimulate one another. And so I had fabulous years at Daystar, um, both in and out of the classrooms, in the dorms with students doing their Bible studies, in fellowships, in one of my favorite uh, aspects of our involvement was they had a, a group that met voluntarily every Tuesday noon for fellowship, as they called it. Uh, now, it, this was the, the Daystar evangelistic uh, team, and they would meet every Tuesday uh, to worship, to pray, to discuss, to strategize about upcoming ministries they had more invitations coming in that than they could possibly fill so literally every single weekend our students were out uh preaching in not just preaching but doing drama leading bible studies um caring for uh you know they would go to to baby homes to prisons to churches to marketplaces and so i had such fun for example going back to some of the rural high schools that i had been involved with uh earlier in fact my headmistress friend then started a new school up in turkana so i was able to take a group of 10 um university students charter small planes to fly up to turkana this desert area up in the north where the peoples are still largely nomadic and we had the theme of Jesus Christ, the living water, and to to have, you know, five days to be talking about 
who is this person, Jesus, among these first-generation Turkanic girls who are actually in a school while their families are out still wandering the, uh, um, you know, the, the area, and to see our students in action being able to tell the Jesus story and to uh, introduce uh, Bible studies and to do drama and lead worship and engage with the girls uh, informally. That to me was so rich because coming back to our university students, you're there in the classroom, iron sharpening iron, but then you see the transfer of it in our own retreats and prayer meetings and ministries as well as um, going out, be it to Turkana, Tanzania, some of these other areas. So that integration of scholarship, life, ministry, uh, joys, sorrows, you name it. It was just, it was doing life together and it was fabulously rich. Mm -hmm. um, so did that, but uh, to try to be brief, um, over those years of ministry, I became aware of this tension within me. I'm doing my best to kind of translate what I have learned from this fabulous theology that we have here at Regent. I did two degrees here. Um, and then this active ministry in the heart of um, Kenya with students from all over Sub-Saharan Africa. But I became increasingly aware of this di disjunct between my training and equipping and all that God was doing out there. And I realized how much more I had to learn about this God of ours and this Jesus story as it's being lived out in mm -hmm. Kenya. And so I began praying uh, that God would provide an African theologian who could help me with that process of understanding what he's doing uh, more deeply in, in, understand more deeply what God is doing in Kenya and across the continent. And so um, really by God's grace, I was able to meet um, a Ghanaian theologian in Kwame Bidiako and uh, he ended up uh, sponsoring or supervising my PhD thesis. Uh, Zach and I were together in Edinburgh learning from uh, Andrew Walls and Kwame Bidiako and just the exposure that I had to um, scholars, figures like this, not only from Africa but from around the world that just helped to expand, enlarge the borders of my tent, so to speak, in understanding this global story of Jesus and how we um, participate in that wider story than I had been aware of, uh, you know, growing up within the one locale here in Canada. Mm -hmm. So I think that's that That was a very significant um, chapter for me, just doing some further in-depth research into African Christianity and then being able to um, help design and facilitate some new theological programs um, in Nairobi and then unexpectedly uh, about seven years ago coming um coming back home here to Regent and having this uh, wonderful opportunity to continue with this dual trajectory of mm -hmm. half-time teaching, half-time dean of students ministry, and just this ongoing cultivation of theology and life. Mm. Mm. Oh, so, so rich, it's so good. Um, clearly the, the context of different parts of Africa has shaped your understanding of theology, and for you, Zach, in particular, your understanding of the common good and mission and the complexities of that word and what that means. Help us understand what, how you've understood um, the gospel and how you've understood the common good and the interaction between those things. Or anything you want to say along those lines. Just no, say whatever. No, first, it's really mm. a, a confession, right? <laughs> um, the frustration 
that in my pilgrimage, reflection, study, books, and so on, there was always a disconnect between the reality of life in the public square and how it shaped everything, everything. Prayer, you know, um, church, everything, everything. And theological resources, ways to help me to live that out meaningfully. Um, Encountering, you know, evangelical forms of Christianity that, in fact, seemed to even advise withdrawal from the public square, Mm. as though that were possible. Mm. As though that were possible. (laughs) And, and so really being told to, to live this split life. Um, so I began asking questions about spiritual. What does spiritual mean? So I actually took an interest in now. Every time I use an English word, let me see if I can find an equivalent in my mother tongue. And spiritual actually is very difficult to find the way it's said in English. To find the equivalent in my mother tongue is very difficult. It's not very meaningful. Yeah. Why? Why? Oh, precisely because language is born mm. in a context. Mm-hmm. Language is about story. So I began to therefore begin to think to privilege my story, to right. privilege, to think, to give dignity, integrity. There is integrity in my story. And, and frankly, to get there was hard. Please remember. Uh, I speak English. Everything I have learned or read, it's been in English. Uh, I have hardly read anything of significance in my mother tongue other than the scriptures because not much is available. So um, my formation, therefore, language and ideas are in the English language. <laughs> so I quite talk about Kwame, remarkable man. Kwame yes. has insisted you do a, if you did a PhD under Kwame at Acrofi Cristala and you are an African, you were to write the abstract in your mother tongue. Absolutely. Or remarkable. You know, it's quite ahead of his time. So the common good, I mean the public square, it's where we interact with every sorts of human being. I mean, when we're on the road, that's the public square, you know, the public hospital, the school systems, public services. Um, um, the, the, it's, it's where we meet people, and it's the, it's the arena of the contestation of ideas that shape culture, society, you know, and, and truth be told, it's, it's the contestation of which idea wins and mm. shapes mm. the dominant way in which we interact and engage in the public square together. Now, and realizing that Christianity by far and large has been socialized into this concept of dominance, of just very much like, and, and that's it really, that's it, that's all I knew. Um, and every time I was having conversations with Muslims about how to be Ugandans, my Christians friends would say, but and you being compromised. <laughs> In a sense, the only way you can have a conversation with a Muslim who is a Ugandan is to talk to him about Jesus. Mm. And that's all the conversation you can have with him. Mm. And I'm thinking, hmm, but we are, we are neighbors. You know, we, we, we got the same hospitals. We, 
you know how our taxes are spent is spent by this uh, sadly rogue regime you know we have a, we have governments that steal from us we should be concerned about how our taxes are spent the muslim pays tax i pay tax for that matter anybody else uh, who i don't agree with so it is in our interest how this public square is shaped and formed and i enter that square i enter the public life definitely with my faith so of course i began to ask and and it's wonderful reading uh, works uh, such as um, um Miroslav Volf uh, Christianity is a public faith it's a prophetic faith it's it's present i mean this deception that we can live without engaging i mean we are we can live our lives without the politics uh, is a is a lie it's a complete lie it's you know it's not true so in abandoning that of course that lie i i am stuck what do i do where do i go and and therefore realizing now the, the lives of ugandans if i can describe this to you a typical child in a, a typical ugandan the age is 15 16 so we are a very young country and where are they they are either in primary school or secondary school and here is the tragedy the completion rates in my country um today 30 35% at primary level at secondary level it's i think 50% and i could go on and so you're asking so this is an education system in which our kids are experiencing they are not going anywhere uh, our healthcare systems have completely collapsed Uh, if you don't have money you literally die anywhere mothers one of the most dangerous things to be in my country is to be a woman uh, as soon as you begin to be a woman you know what i'm talking about mm-hmm. there is no facility in the school system so that's why women drop out and all these things are affecting everybody and and the question is so we must surely as christians be able to shape you know i read the lord's prayer your kingdom come you know uh, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven and truly africa is the earth that i know it's where i mm. you know live this reality and i could go into the earth environment so yes uh, reading again and becoming very clear yes 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 god cares what happens in the public square mm. it is his square it's where our lives are shaped because he cares mm. so and therefore asking the question what therefore is the good in the gospel that is common mm. to all even those who may not believe mm-hmm. uh, don't get me wrong i'm an evangelist mm. right i i want everyone uh, to turn their lives to jesus absolutely but the frustration that i can't force them to become i mean i come to that i had to come to that place to give up the idea that i can convert anybody please understand me mm. i have when i gave up that idea <laughs> because i had been told mm. that it's your job to talk to people about jesus and persuade them and you know in a sense conversion was somehow within your own power within your own remit right and realizing no it isn't it isn't it's completely not so are you okay okay, okay. so okay so but now if, if i speaking to another ugandan african or for that matter a, you know muzungu you know white person and i don't succeed are okay. they are they no 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 she's a muzungu but she's already she's already kingdom it's different kind you know, kingdom, yeah kingdom, kingdom, kingdom. you're talking to a muzungu who is, doesn't know jesus and 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 
End story. They are not interested. Mm. Can you have any other conversations? Mm. Absolutely. Let's talk about football. Let's talk about life. And, mm. and maybe that... Com- and I really... The burden that every conversation must talk about Jesus. And I'm thinking, okay, okay. It, it's going to be no more natural because Jesus is life. Mm. Don't force it. You know. So coming to these places. So yes, the public square matters. Yes. God cares that we inhabit spaces together with each other as human beings and that we owe to one another the well-being of the other. Mm-hmm. We do. And especially the Christian. The Christian ought to care even more. Why? Because of the love of God. God is love. The Christian ought to care because God is just. God cares that human beings flourish. God cares. The reason Jesus dies is to demolish the powers of repression, oppression, of evil, sin. And so we must enter that square with passionate about creating space in which nobody's excluded, creating mm-hmm. space in which uh, the Muslim also has space to pray the way they want to pray. You know, don't force them. God will deal with them the way he does course talk about Jesus. You know, I, I can never forget, I, I had a conference with Muslims, uh, religious leaders. We were bishops, sheikhs, um, uh, you know, Catholics, Protestants, Muslims, and, and I was one of the speakers, and I was speaking about really the common good in the public square, mm. justice. And the first thing I said, I, I'm a, I speak to you as a bishop, I want to apologize, and I want to especially apologize to Muslims. You know, Muslim uh, Sheikh's leaders who are here, I apologize to you because forgive us Christians because we made Jesus a Christian. Jesus is not a Christian. Jesus came for all of us. And, you know, I, one of the bishops later, he literally accosted me and he said, that's heresy. I said, well, I, I'm still sure Jesus is not a Christian. You know, Jesus came for all. So why do we want a square in which nobody else is when Jesus wants everybody there to uh, thrive, human flourishing? So, yes, the justice of God, the love of God, the holiness of God, that there needs to be, the Christian community needs to be seen in the public square, representing a community that gives hope. Mm. But today, I wouldn't say that that's true about the church because when you look at churches, they are ethnic. I mean, okay, let's talk here. You know, you have African-American churches. You mm. have... Uh, uh, I think we should now begin to say white American churches. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> not, not say Caucasian, you know, white yeah, American. Yeah, yeah. Or black churches, white churches, yeah. you know, Asian, Korean. And, you know, the outsider looks and he thinks... This thing is not even as good as the marketplace. Mm. The workplace is mm. more inclusive mm. than, the lo- than the church. So why should I go to church? Mm. I mean, what do I want to go to a place that does it, that's so tribal? Yeah. And so that reflection itself, uh, so the witness of the Christian community in the public square, critical, mm. remarkable. And so passionate about this. Uh, so yes, I am deeply involved in... Uh, uh, trusting God, working with others uh, who are Christian, who are not Christian, who are Muslim, who are to just say, we can actually work together mm. for the common good. And I come into this space, I come into this space as one 
whose life is shaped by Jesus. There's mm. no, you don't hide it, you mm. don't. And if somebody tries to stop me to talk about it, I say, wait a moment, sir. Allow me to speak about what shapes my life, just like I do. Now, I say this in this country, and, and Christian people, God's people, let's learn it. Secularism is a form of religion. Mm. And when we constantly say we can't talk about Jesus in the public and allow other people to talk about their ideas of life in public, there is something drastically wrong. Mm. And I said to Christian people in this country, in Canada, in the United States, I think you need to be bold. This idea that you can't talk about Jesus anytime, any place, anywhere. So why talk about anything else? Why? Mm. Why? So, and we need to see more Christians here in this country paying the price for talking about Jesus in the public square. And I think that this withdrawal by Christians is a manifestation that actually we don't believe Jesus is the common good for everyone. Mm -hmm. Because Jesus is universal story. He is the story of everyone. Let's talk about it. Let's not force it. I think that's the problem. We force it. Mm. And I think we do not know how else to do it, but to force it. Tragic. Jesus didn't do that. You know, mm. he, he in us doesn't do that. So, I, I, yes, I think that by withdrawing, we have made the Jesus movement a tribal movement. It's only for us. Mm. And by not knowing how to communicate these values, these values that are for everyone, you know, in ways in which they are for everyone. And commend them, not force them, commend them. And if it is really good, let them make the judgment. And Jesus said this, let your light shine. That they may see, who is they? They may see, they may see, you know, mm. and give praise. Who is to give praise? Not you. They see and they give praise to God in heaven. So, let your light shine mm. anywhere, anytime, any place. Mm. Mm. Diane, you need to say something off of that. What can I say after <laughs> that? <laughs> um, th- Zach, thank you. Um, there's there's something I was I'm interested for you, Diane, as well in your as you've um, engaged with um, African Christianity and African theology. Um, this 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 idea that the Jesus story manifests itself uh, in the common good and all of those kinds of things, but that's come out of Zach's context as being an African. Um, how have you seen um, African theology perhaps broaden our understand your understanding as a Westerner of who Jesus is and what the gospel is? Is that can you? It's a big question. Um, but Zach's given us an example of how an African sees things in a way that us as Westerners don't. And so you're just your reflections on that. Yeah, that is a huge one, um, but a good question. And I think in brief, what I would underline um, is that theology is deeply shaped by biography. As he said, we mm-hmm. our, our pilgrimage is shaped by um, Jesus shapes us in our life narratives and consequently theology is also contextual and so what I think what I've seen is how the very realities in that context cannot help but shape people's 
experience and understanding of who Jesus is. And so, the, yeah, there's lots of things that you could talk about, even coming down to uh, what is the gospel? If you ask people in North America, what is the gospel? What's the first verse that will come to their mind? Likely, John 3.16. That's what we grew up with. For God so loved the world, um, you know, that he gave his only begotten son, that uh, whoever believes in him should not die but have eternal life. So we've made it all about this salvation, this individual conversion, this uh, us striving to uh, be obedient to Jesus. I would say... What I have come to see and appreciate are two strands in African Christianity. Zach has already borne witness to it. It's about life. Mm. And this is straight from the gospel. Jesus said, I have come to give life, not a program of personal salvation. I've come to give life in all of its abundance. And so I've come to see just the far more holistic approaches to theology, to uh, our walk with God, to our practice of the Christian faith, um, as well as, uh, you know, the Matthew 25, that uh, unto whom, sorry, uh, no, uh, you know, as you do to the least of these, so you've done it to me. And as you've heard, the very realities in Africa cannot help but shape your experience of the gospel and of life together in the community, both the Christian community and beyond. Mm -hmm. So simple examples. I remember being floored when I started at Daystar, and the women used to have, uh, students used to have their own fellowship uh, one noon hour. And I remember this one very vibrant, very expressive Kenyan woman standing up and absolutely praising God because she had gone for her driver's license 11 times and had finally got it. Mm. And I thought, did you have trouble parallel parking or what's the story? <laughs> the reality there is that they would not give her the license without a bribe. So we're back to the cost of discipleship. And there's somebody who doesn't have the pocket money to pay 11 times for that license, but she will go back and pay the time and pay the cost 11 times in order to get her driver's license. And she will come in, she'll come out absolutely praising God and inviting everybody to sing hallelujah because she got her license. Now, that's in a context, you know, the other side of the coin is that's in a context where supposedly 80 plus percent of the population is Christian. So it gets back to the politics that he's talking about. Why should it take anybody 11 times to get a driver's license? So you see this breakdown between the gospel we proclaim and the gospel we profess mm. and the realities in the public square. Um, you know, so that, so that would be one thing. And just getting back to the, um, the absolute prophetic dimension, you know, when, when Zach is saying we need to be bolder in this country, be more willing to pay the cost, I think that's what I've seen more out in Africa because, uh, I, I say Africa, not that I've been all over, but because we've had students from all over Africa. Mm. So from all these um, situations of, you know, war-torn, we've got students who are refugees. I mean, uh, during the genocide um, in 1994, we had approximately 50 or 60 students from Rwanda, from Burundi, of both Hutu and Tutsi backgrounds. They're on campus together while they're 
countries, their families, their communities, their churches, as we've increasingly come to see, are massacring each other. Mm -hmm. We have university students who are coming together to pray and to deal with all of those raw human emotions and realities as they're hearing about their family members being slaughtered at home. Now, how do you respond to that? But, you know, how do we embolden our witness that whatever the circumstances are, despite all of the evil surrounding us and all of the um, human inclinations within us that would want to make us hate and lash out against the other, even in those kinds of situations, can we truly come together? How do you be a dean of students, a chaplain in that kind of situation where people are experiencing that level of trauma? Or one last uh, example comes to mind um, with the post-election violence at the end of 2007. It was horrific. I mean, they called it the streets of you know, Nairobi are burning, and they, they literally were. The carnage and the devastation and neighbors turning upon neighbors and torching homes and slaughtering people. And again, so institutions were shut down. But our um, Daystar leadership got together and decided that, you know what, by way of a Christian witness, we need to reopen our gates Security has to be there. Mm. And so we were actually the first uh, university across the land, public or private, to reopen our doors uh, for business. And it was surreal to go to campus and to see not just soldiers, but the the SWAT, the equivalent of our SWAT teams, the ninja soldiers on campus patrolling, lest any further uh, violence should break out, whether, you know, within or within or beyond uh, our walls. Mm. So in the midst of that kind of devastation to say, it costs to follow Jesus. But you know what? We're here in order to continue learning about who God is, to continue uh, equipping people to serve God in the marketplace, in the churches, wherever they might be, and whatever that costs, we need to do that. Mm-hmm. So I think, um, you know, as, as Zach was saying earlier, he finds it difficult to come to North America and to engage with people who essentially are comfortable, right? And it takes me back to um, something I heard that really marked me when I was 18. We had a, a function on... Um, campus at the University of Calgary and uh, he was a young man at the time, I remember his name was Lloyd Opal, had been um, uh, was working in Cambodia, was um, interned, he was uh, imprisoned uh, and f- for his 21st birthday and year and he came back and talked to us as university students about the, the test of affluence And I think it's something that we don't think enough about. We're so comfortable and we're so complacent. We're not always aware of context because it is the air we breathe, Mm -hmm. like fish in water. You're not Mm -hmm. aware of it until you get out of that context and see what is happening elsewhere. Mm -hmm. I think it's, uh, it's difficult to live out boldly prophetic witness in this context because of the Mm -hmm. very comfort and complacency, um, you know, that we find ourselves in here. So I, I hear his call, and I, I echo it and hope that I too can can live into it, but mm. it is, it's a real challenge. Mm. 
Zach and Diane, we could keep talking forever, but we won't. But thank you for your, um, yeah, thanks for your inspiring prophetic vision for us and critique. And Diane, thanks for your time as well. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> thanks for listening to the Regent College podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. To discover more about Regent College, its upcoming events, conferences, courses, and more content like this, visit regent.net. That's R-G-N-T dot net.